Hello there. You're listening to the Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. We'll also be doing the second part of our Rob Reiner director analysis, looking over his hot streak of the late 80s and early 90s. We're specifically going to be talking about the second half of that streak, talking about When Harry Met Sally, Misery, and A Few Good Men. Let's dive into some trailer talk. Trailers are back, and they are amazing again. You love to see it. Tell me you saw the Killers trailer. I did see the Killers trailer. I think it's just the Killer, isn't it? Just singular? Oh, it might be. Isn't the Killer the band? Uh, You may be right, yes. I the am Killer. Right. The Killer trailer <laughs> was really, really good. Very intriguing. Michael F- Fassbender looks odd. I like the bucket hat. Good choice. <laughs> It does, uh, yeah, serial killers, assassins, they love to have their looks, and that bucket hat is a look. So, sure. yeah, that trailer was awesome. Very pumped for that. Looks exciting, looks intense. Ferrari from Michael Mann. Did you catch that trailer? Uh, I skipped it. You skipped it? I skipped it. Are you scarred from Adam Driver starring in yes. films about Italian yes, I am. entrepreneurs? One hundred percent. Well, did, I think you did, check it did, out. Did he keep his regular accent, or is he doing an Italian accent? He's going for the accent, oh, but God. the good part of the trailer is there's like only one line in the entire thing. Most of it is silent. Okay. Like no dialogue spoken. It's just like the score ramping. I am up. Ferrari. I I I, <laughs> I drive my car. It's the Ferraris. So uh, he's gonna sound so cartoonish. Not it's quite that. Just intense. like gonna be just like Gucci. <laughs> not Jared Leto uh, has a Gucci level, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it was another uh, great trailer. I love that approach too. Just no sound, uh, no like dialogue being spoken. Just seeing some images and then the score building up until we do get a line from our boy Adam Driver. But what was the line? Uh, some about mamma mia, my- it's a car. <laughs> if you drive my car. You drive to win. That's what he said, but not like that. <laughs> he said it like Mario. <laughs> For another trailer, Saltburn from Emerald Fennel. Who did I didn't know the, young the, woman. I did not know the trailer for this released until you just said it, which makes me sad because I would have watched the trailer if I knew it was out. My boy, gotta be on the lookout for these trailers. I know it. Uh, it's definitely got some talented mr ripley vibes i like that i love that movie mm-hmm. and it's shot by linus sandgren who did la la land and babylon most recently so cool. it looks gorgeous looks incredible also has barry keoghan jacob Elordi, rosamund pike so a great Good cast names. there strong names so yeah it's one that i'm looking forward to so much coming out i think in late november might be yeah something like that very excited Mm -hmm. so definitely give that a watch as well and then different uh type of film and different type of trailer rebel moon from Zack snyder apparently the first part of two parts to this Mm -hmm. rebel moon will come out at the end of this year 
Did you catch the trailer for this? It looks so fucking good. I think it's really great. you're a big fan. I, I was, like the trailer. I didn't I like know which way you were gonna go, so I'm. I I will say though, I thought it was really funny when they brought out lightsabers. <laughs> well, yeah, it's definitely very. Because this was supposed to be his Star, Star Wars, Wars movie, yeah. And he just was like, "No, nah, I'll make it without Star Wars," but then kept the lightsabers, which I think is really really funny. But other than that, I thought the CGI looked fantastic. I thought the story looks exciting. I thought it looked like it like it like pumped me up. I want to see that trailer in a in a movie theater because I feel like we really pumped watching it the same way I was pumped watching the Mission Impossible trailer. It was mm. good. It was a good trailer. Like nice. I'm excited I'm, for it. I'm more mixed on it. I think there are some shots that undeniably, I mean, they look incredible. They look amazing, and then others are sort of wrapped in that like very obvious green screen uh, sort of look. And then you know Zack Snyder's whole approach to his color grading. At some points, it can be a little grating to the eyes. No, nah, I'm pro Zack Snyder. I think he knows what he's doing. I think it'll. Come I think out yeah, good. he's a very. Uh, I think it'll come minded director. So I think it'll. It's definitely one I'm going to watch. Like I am excited for. It. Absolutely, it was one of yeah. the ones that I had at the beginning of the year that I was uh, interested in seeing, and I love that it's going to be just a big budget again. Like it was meant to be a Star Wars film, but he had to go and flip it and make it original. But I love that we're getting something like that. So mm. I'm pumped for it as well. Yeah, that'd be awesome. In other news, the Walt Disney VFX workers have finally voted to unionize, which is a good sign for the VFX industry as a whole, that they should all unionize, not just Disney, because VFX artists are not treated well. None at all. So we'll see if that continues to bring down the dominoes across the rest of the industry and other uh, VFX houses will unionize. But seems like, yeah, something is stirring here with Marvel and the Disney so we'll mm-hmm. report on whichever one does it next, which hopefully there will be more that do so and do so soon. In terms of streaming premieres, One Piece has just released on Netflix. So that is another major anime adaptation. Of course, there have been a lot of unsuccessful attempts so far, like Cowboy Bebop, Death Note, mm. um, but One Piece being probably the biggest anime of all time at least manga wise i think that pretty much is uh for sure definitely the longest running one has to be oh yeah jesus so it's got a huge fan base um and so netflix poured a lot of money into trying to make this be a huge hit so we'll see if that'll be a success for them i've heard good things nice wheel of time season two is premiering on prime and then Ahsoka is continuing to release on Disney+. Plus. So are any of these going to be ones that you check out? I'm not going to watch any of these. None, none of them. Not any of the three. Interesting. I don't really have an interest in Ahsoka because I've never seen uh, Rebels. I don't care about Wheel of Time ever. Didn't watch season one. Not going to watch season two. And... Uh, I would like to watch One Piece, but I feel like I really want to watch the anime first, and I'm never going to watch the anime. It's, it's 1,100 <laughs> episodes, and it's still going on. I'm never going to watch that. Dang, crazy. So it was just all slip through the cracks. Yeah, I don't blame you. They're uh, One Piece and Wheel of Time, too. I mean, that has, what, like 18 books or something like yeah, that? Yeah, dude, it's so, crazy. Yeah, wild stuff. Um, in other news, Taylor Swift. She is going to bring a concert film for the Eras tour 
that she's mm-hmm. been doing all across the country this whole like year pretty much they announced out of the blue out of nowhere that they were going to have a concert film and then that it would be on october 13th and then the swifties came out in full force do you yeah. know did you hear this stuff about like the the pre-sale numbers on this thing nope it is just mind-boggling in the first 24 hours it has surpassed this is just from amc alone because i think initially it was meant to be a partnership with amc and then it, all the other theaters wanted to get on this when they saw the crazy numbers that were happening mm-hmm. amc's website was like shutting down or bugging out as people were trying to fill in the queue to get their That's tickets crazy and then for the first 24 hours it ended up being 26 million from just amc which beat out the previous record holder of no way home which was like 17 million that's insane so yeah and then in terms of total pre-sales for the 24 hours i think it made like 35 million or something like that so it again far and away beat the force awakens no way home and then it got close to endgame which i think was around 40 million that's in its first 24 hours this is are we, insane are we going to consider this a contender for the box office draft i think it has to be considered it's just insane like there it could get a hundred million open weekend like that pretty much seems a lock at this point if it's got almost half of that from pre-sales in the first 24 hours alone that's crazy like this is insane like the actual tour itself is supposed to become like the highest grossing of all time mm-hmm. like getting over a billion which no other tour has done apparently at this point and then may reach up to like 1.52 billion that is insane mm-hmm and then now this concert film is like breaking records. It's already going to be in its opening weekend. It's going to beat out any other concert film ever. Like I think Justin mm-hmm. Bieber's from way back when, Never Seen Ever. Never Seen Ever, yeah. Yeah, got like 72 million total domestic. I remember that. The opening weekend of this is going to blow that out of the water. So yeah. this is just insane. Taylor Swift is like on top of the world. She's a printing press for money at this point. This is insane. This might be a good movie for you to pick. Could be. Could be. We'd do you to, think it, we'd have to see. Do you think it could hit four hundred million worldwide? <laughs> well, it needs to hit six hundred million. Um Oh shit, you're right. And it right now only has a domestic release, not a worldwide release. Uh, but that's so the thing. If this was going worldwide, I you might be inclined it, yeah. to pick it because I mean, this is insane. Even domestic, it's gonna make a boatload of money. It probably will get close to four hundred million. Yeah, um which is crazy. These Swifties are just crazy. Like they, they'll just throw money at her, like it's nothing. They get their paycheck and then they immediately find a way to spend it on Taylor Swift. Um, so, yeah, it's gonna make a boatload of money. I just don't think, although you never know, but I don't think there's any possible way that it's gonna be able to get to what I needed to domestically. Like Fair enough, just crossed as we'll talk about soon. Just crossed six hundred million domestic. So, <laughs> yeah, I can't see this one happening, but. It's insane that this has become out of nowhere a contender and we didn't even know it existed last week. Very funny. All right. And the last bit of news we're going to talk about is The Exorcist, as an attempt to avoid Taylor Swift's massacre, has moved to October 6th. Crazy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they missed out on the uh, Barbenheimer possibility of Exor Swift. 
that was going around a bit, but they immediately shut it down. They're like, nope, get out of the way. Let her have the weekend. So crazy. that would have been really funny. Extra Swift. I would have seen That's both. That's what I'm saying. That would have been. I would have done the double feature and I don't even like Taylor Swift that much. <laughs> so yeah, they honestly should have kept it, but yeah, I guess they, I don't know. They thought it'd be a better. I mean, it would have gotten bet. devoured. Exorcist would not have made any, like nobody else would have done the double feature. They didn't have enough build up to do it. Right. No shot. It's already September. Like it was the right move to move it, but it would have been a really, really funny double feature. It would have been even funnier than Barb and Ira. <laughs> but, all right. Let's now move on to the box office breakdown for August 25th to the 27th. Gran Turismo in its debut was able to take the crown yeah. 17.4 million. It placed on the podium. There you go. Yeah. But coming close second was Barbie with 15 million, bringing its domestic total to, as you said earlier, $600 million. Ooh, that's a good number. Ooh, that's a good number. <laughs> Blue Beetle with 12.1 million coming in third place. Oppenheimer with 8.2 million, bringing its domestic total to 300 million. Ooh, also a good number. Ooh, <laughs> great number. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie with 7.2 million, now crossing 100 million domestic. Strays with 5 million. Meg 2 The Trench, 4.8 million. Retribution, 3.5 million. The Hill, 2.3 million. And Talk to Me, the horror movie, 2.2 million. Still holding cool. up. Mm-hmm. For box office predictions for the upcoming week, September 1st to September 3rd, The Equalizer 3 comes out. Denzel Washington, he's back. The first Equalizer film in 2014 had 34 million in its opening. Equalizer 2 in 2018 had 36 million. Dylan, what do you think Equalizer 3 is going to be able to get? I think no shot at passes 25. I think the, the Equalizer series has run its course, and I don't think there's been enough advertisements to draw people in. I think 25 is the ceiling. Gotcha. I also would have agreed with you there if we were talking about Equalizer 2 and Equalizer, the initial one. But somehow it made as much money as it did. So I don't know. There's still, I feel like, a strong contingent of people that are going to go out and watch it. So I'll say... Over $30 million for sure. I don't know if it'll be able to touch what the original got, but I think it'll still somehow get fairly close. We'll see. Okay. Right, now we can move on to our main discussion, which is going to be our second director analysis on Mr. Robert Reiner. Now, the last time we talked about... Uh, uh, God, fuck. What is the name of the movie with the, the, the rockumentary? Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap, God, why didn't I remember that? We talked about this is Spinal Tap, Stand By Me, and The Princess Bride, and now we're going to be following it up with When Harry Met Sally, Misery, and A Few Good Men. Now, Ryan, these three movies, have you seen any of these three before watching them? I have seen When Harry Met Sally. I had not seen Misery or A Few Good Men. And were you excited to be tackling those two movies specifically? Yeah, of course. I mean, as we all know, I'm a Sorkin fan. So a few good men definitely had always had that on my watch list. Mm -hmm. So now I finally had a great opportunity to watch it, although it was not easy to track that thing down. Um, So thanks for lending me your copy of it. But yeah, so I was definitely excited for that. And then Misery being a Stephen King book, um, I mean, definitely respect to Stephen King. But, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of horror 
or horror adjacent things. So that sure. has never really been something that was on my radar, but I was interested to see how uh, Rob Reiner would tackle that since it definitely was the one film that was quite distinct from the rest of his filmography so far, which had mm-hmm. a lot more uh, like comedy elements or, you know, coming of age elements. This one trying to take on what I saw thought was a horror film. I was curious about how that would turn out. Now we're going to talk about when Harry met Sally from 1989. First, when was the first time you watched this movie or the last time? Um, it was a couple years ago. I don't remember exactly when it was though, but I feel like mm-hmm. it would be 2018 or 2019, somewhere around that time. I feel like it's when I uh, watched it for the first time because it's just one of those classics you always hear about. So mm-hmm. I was like, let me watch this. It probably had come up on Netflix or something. So I was like, you know what? Let me give it a watch. Mm-hmm. And it was a great decision because it is delightful. Yeah. A lovely film. This is this is my favorite romantic comedy, and I've seen it so many times. I adore this movie. Can it's you one put of a my number favorites. on it. How many times do you think? <sighs> probably, including the time watching it for this time, I've probably actually watched it like five times. And I saw it for the first time in maybe like 2017. Gotcha. So in six years, I've watched it like five times. I probably watch it once a year at least. I love this movie. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So it is co-written by Nora Ephron and Rob Reiner. Nora Ephron, of course, being one of the most premier rom-com writers. And mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, authors as well. But certainly she leveled up to being a screenwriter. Um And so this was probably the one that launched it, right? Because all the other ones came afterwards. So all the other ones came after this one. Solidified Uh, her. Seattle, you've got mail. All those came in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you got mail might have been in the early 2000s, but eh. All the Tom Hanks ones came later. Right. So this was sort of a turning point, I would say, for the rom-com where it ushered in what we know more as like the modern rom-com, which definitely like yeah, in the 90s, early 2000s sort of solidified itself. Sure. And then since then has sort of fallen away partially yeah. I think, due to Netflix, like being able to just crank those out, um, which is a shame. But this one definitely sure. uh, established itself as like one of the quintessential rom-coms. So yeah, we have them co-writing it. Rob Reiner obviously in the director's chair and then his friends and frequent collaborator as a cameo billy crystal in the role as harry meg ryan as sally and then carrie fisher bruno kirby as each of their um, best friends so yeah let's just dive into this film i mean you truly absolutely love it i where would it, love this movie your like favorite rom-com where would it stack for you on the all-time list is it I top 50 top 100 uh, it's probably top fifty. I gotta, I gotta add it in. I haven't added it in yet, but it's probably top fifty. I mean, it's just <laughs> delightful, just so delightful. Mm-hmm. For sure, I think one thing that uh, makes this distinct, and I'm not like that well versed in rom coms, um, but one thing that at least just to me, from knowing the general tropes that the others have, this one comes at it with them being a friendship like you know obviously there's those possibilities there of them getting together and you're kind of rooting for that throughout but the whole intention here is it's like them first forming that relationship 
as friends. And then much later mm-hmm. on is when any of the romantic stuff really starts getting acted upon. Whereas mm-hmm. for most other rom-coms, at least like after by the midpoint, they have already like kissed or become a couple. And then it's like, oh, something breaks them apart. But they've already like established they are like a romantic couple and then they get split up. Here mm-hmm. it's about them being friends for the most part. And then it's the one time that they do start acting on their um, romantic inclinations that that's when things get awkward and they split up for a bit. So that approach to it, I think, is uh, very fascinating because it allows us to just enjoy them together, like them just enjoying each other's company, spending mm-hmm. time together, being great friends for each other um, mm-hmm. without it necessarily having that immediate baggage of like are we going to end up together are we not like they sort of settle on this position of we're not going to and we're happy just being where we're at Mm -hmm. um so i think that approach to it was one of the great things that sets it apart um i also love the we talked about in the first episode on rob reiner but the way that he has these framing devices that clue us into the fact that we're like looking at a story he's not trying to trick us into thinking, oh this is real life we get this framing device of old couples just reminiscing on how they met. And they're just sitting on a couch, just talking as if they were talking to some old friend or some random person. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this isn't like an interview style, but um, they're just talking about how they met and fell in love. So we get that every time they sort of do a time jump. Um, and it's just a really nice way to clue us into the overall themes that we got going on of like there's many different ways that you can end up with the person that you spend the rest of your life with um some of them they knew instantly and they're like high school sweethearts other people like that one couple that had he had gotten married like three or four times yeah yeah and then they got back together yeah and then he got back with his like initial wife so i was with marjorie but at the (laughs) time i couldn't keep my eyes off of you so funny and then they're like they were at a funeral or something and then yeah like, <laughs> she caught her uh his it's eye really yet funny. again um so yeah i think that's just a lovely way to like speak on the overall themes that we got going on and to give us a nice way of having something happen in between the time skips and then it also sets up just a lovely ending oh yeah which you you hope and pray is coming the whole way through and it finally happens and it's just so joyous when you see harry and sally on the couch talking about their love story and how they just saw unfold so beautiful it's really great i love the way that like you you watch this really complicated relationship over the course of two years and then they're on that couch and it's just very simply like oh we we drove together from chicago to new york and then came really good friends and then started seeing each other and then they start talking about food and the way she orders food (laughs) it's very funny Mm mm-hmm just the oversimplification of it is just very sweet. Absolutely. Um, and then the another major part to this is so much of it draws from like Nora Ephron and Rob Reiner's real life. Like them mm. and Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal, they imbue these characters of Harry and Sally with so much of their real selves yeah. that the chemistry that Harry and Sally have, oh, a lot so of the conversations fantastic. they're having, the issues they're having, all of it feels so real um, and you can connect with and relate to it so easily because it is so much of it is drawing from real life situations that they've had 
and mm. that anyone can sort of latch onto. So that stuff is great. Like one of them being the the ordering thing. Apparently, that's like one of Nora Efron's things. Mm. Um, she likes to have a very particular way that all her orders are made. So things like that. Um, was it? It's Reiner and Crystal. They they were the people that they would call each other and just watch films together and just like comment oh, over know. it. Maybe. I think that's what I've heard somewhere. Like that's where they picked that up from. It was somewhere from like Rob Reiner's real life friendship with somebody. So that's sweet though. I'd love to have a friendship like that. <laughs> if only you liked to talk over movies, <laughs> your biggest for pet peeve, certain movies I'll do that for if it's gotta be, I mean, yeah, it's gotta be the type of movie definitely never in theaters, but if we're <laughs> sitting at home and we're, if it's not one that's like a classic or if it's one that I've already seen before, then I'm fine. You know, dishing out some commentary on it. You know what I'm saying? You don't want to call me? Put on the TV? We could <laughs> we do can. a Netflix party. We can do our, yeah, those watch parties. <laughs> Netflix really does funny. it. Prime does it, I think. So. Does Prime do it, really? I think so, yeah. yeah. They need to get Max to do it. I hate that it's called Max. Yeah, I still do not. It's like I'm, it's like I'm talking about a guy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's HBO Max. Nothing else. Um, but yeah, I think... It's just the structure of it as well, getting the their first impressions of each other and then they just go mm. about their separate lives and they come back when they meet five years later and then same deal. They have like their second impression and it's still not great. They don't really end up as friends. And it's only in that third time, um, like 10 years after their initial encounter, that once their relationships have fallen apart, both of their marriages end, then they're able to spark up that friendship Um and yeah, I think it's it's really great. A lot of the little moments that they have together, uh, like for instance, watching that movie on the uh, on the phone, Casablanca, mm-hmm. amazing, great, it's so sweet. Mm-hmm. So that stuff um, when they're walking through the park together, you know, which gives that iconic poster image as well. Oh yeah, the, it's shot so beautifully. I love the scene where they're in the museum and they're backlit by the giant window. And he's like, for the rest of the day, we are going to talk like this. I love Mm. it. I love that scene. It is great. Um, But yeah, just little quirks like that. Just you see it throughout the whole film and it makes them feel so real. Um, So you want to root for them to be able to get together. Oh, absolutely. Their chemistry Uh, is undeniable and beautiful. mm -hmm. Such good performers. We talked a little bit about the ROM. What about the COM, Ryan? Did you, <laughs> did you, did you have a lot of laughs in there? For sure. Uh, I think we just have to talk about the most memorable scene of the of entire course. film. Mm. The faking the orgasm scene. I just wish, like, could you imagine have, seeing that in the theater for the first time? Like, it not knowing it's coming, just going in there. It would have been a riot. Like, and then the lady I- saying, I'll have what she's having. <laughs> Good, like, iconic line. Yeah, just amazing. And then even the development of that where, and I think this speaks to the strength of Reiner, which as we talked a bit about in that like first episode, we were like, what is his style? He doesn't really have a very distinct style, but that allows him to be a bit of a chameleon and adapt to these different genres. But what he does do, I think, is work really well with his actors and oh, give yeah. space for improv or for allowing them just to pitch ideas and figure things out. Like he's not married to... A script and making sure that it has to be this way like he's always ready to bring people in to collaborate and develop something even further 
So mm. where that developed is apparently uh, Nora Ephron had mentioned that of like, oh, this is a thing that happens. And Rob Reiner was incredulous. He was like, that does not happen. Like he was the, the Harry in the scene. Mm. Um, and then they went around did an informal poll and learned that, no, it does in fact happen. Um, so then they pitch it to Meg and Billy and they they also riff on it. They're like, oh, what if she doesn't just talk about it? What if she actually does that and like demonstrates to him how this works? And then Billy came up with the line of, I'll have what she's having. So Such they were able line. to stack that up all together. Like, it's just beautiful the way that developed because, yeah, it wasn't originally in the script. It just came from them talking about their mm-hmm. real experiences. Rob Reiner disbelieving it. And they're like, oh, this would be like a funny scene to have in. And then her being like, no, she's got to do it. And then Billy having that line to add in there. It all just creates such an amazing scene. It was so fun. I was still laughing out loud, which is amazing because you know exactly what's going to happen. You know mm-hmm. everything about it, but it still can make you laugh. It's so good. She commits so hard to that. And it goes on for like a minute. It's like almost a full minute of her doing that. It's amazing. So memorable. Yeah, I love the scene where uh, Billy Crystal and Bruno Kirby are playing. They're like at the batting cage and they're doing baseball. And Billy Crystal's talking about how he made a woman meow. And, <laughs> and Bruno Kirby goes, you made a woman meow? And then Billy Crystal continues his whole conversation and talks on and on about something completely different. And Bruno Kirby goes, you made a woman meow? <laughs> yeah, that is so funny. The, really, um, really good. When he's telling him about his upcoming divorce and they're at the baseball game <laughs> and they're doing and they're the doing wave. the wave <laughs> as he's talking about it it's so good yeah so many just fun little moments like that and consistently clever dialogue throughout as well like yeah it's just all of it works yeah the argument about the wagon wheel table yeah that's the stupid <laughs> wagon wheel table was really funny he's like in five years you'll be arguing about who's gonna get the wagon wheel table and she's like mm-hmm. i will never Ask for the wagon wheel table. table. (laughs) (laughs) So really, really funny. Uh, What else is funny? God, I love when they they go on the double date and they're trying to set each other up with each other's friends. And then uh, Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher end up liking each other and they promise not to do anything quick about it. And then they immediately hop into a cab together and it just peels off. Yeah, that was good too. Great gag. That whole like premise too of them going on the double date and it's like not working out for each of them, but the two dates they tried to bring for their friend actually ends up together. It's very just great stuff. Also, that whole little subplot too of them like we see them get married. Yeah, like the, see the whole relationship of, develop. Yeah, yeah, um, super super sweet that that happens. And again, it speaks to the overall thing of like it can happen in any way. They immediately clicked. Carrie Fisher's character the entire first half of the movie is so funny. She's never going to leave him or he's never going to leave her. I I just, I I can't believe he's never going to leave her. And Meg Ryan's like, we all know he's never going to leave her. We've been telling you and it's been five years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's so funny. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah. Any other comments you want to make about the, the film, its structure, the acting? I just think it's beautiful. I think it's a beautiful movie. I think the the way it's shot is gorgeous. The chemistry is gorgeous. The writing is so funny and so tender, and it's just so real in such a such a fun way. Like it's such a lighthearted movie, and it's just so easy to watch that I can just put it on at any time. It just makes me so happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is great. 
another thing uh, the the way they don't try and emphasize or shoehorn in any of the um, stuff about like their careers or their home lives or even like the significant others that they have like we see what is it joe and helen respectively for um, their yeah their like initial marriages but we only see them each in like one scene we don't really spend too much time on like seeing their relationship with the other person. We just are looking at the aftermath and mm-hmm. seeing what Harry and Sally reveal to their own friends or to each other about that. Um, so I think that's an interesting approach too. I feel like uh, later versions of the rom-com definitely try and emphasize this other aspect of we got to have a subplot or we got to have some other part of their lives that isn't just tied to the romance. But here they're like, this is literally this is Harry and Sally when they met and when their friendship developed and how they got together. All we need to see is just that, not yeah. anything else. So I like how it stays really focused in on that particular part. Yeah. Also, I want to say one last thing. Billy Crystal's fits in the early 90s, specifically this movie and City Slickers and a couple other movies, <laughs> is so good. They're so simple and so classic. God. Mm-hmm. He had he had just the best fits, if you ask me. The the button downs tucked into the jeans with the white New Balance sneakers and the the New York Mets hats, or the the oversized T shirt on top of the oversized long sleeve shirt. It just it works and it looks really good. I really like his fits. This is so funny. Do you know the? Whole... I wish I wish I could reproduce his fits, but we live in Florida and it's so fucking hot that all I can wear is shorts and T shirts. Hmm. Very true. Do you know the whole he's literally me meme from like Ryan Gosling? Yeah. Yeah. Billy Crystal's literally you have found me. your uh, literally me guy. It's Billy Crystal. If, yeah. If I could copy, <laughs> if I could copy anybody's aesthetic, it would be Billy Crystal in the early nineties. He looks so cool. <laughs> wow. What an unexpected take. I think he looks but great. The, uh, high compliments for the costume designer for Billy Crystal. For sure. On those films. The, the tweed jackets, the button-down shirts with the rolled-up sleeves. Yeah, the tweed very cla- uh, fitting jeans. Yeah, very classic. I need to get myself some white sneakers and dirty them up a little bit. Mm-hmm. It just looks so good. Roll Even the even the suspenders, we're, we're working for them. And that's a hard thing to pull off. Especially <laughs> like even in the 90s, when the, mm-hmm. they still did quirky things like that. It's still hard to pull off, and he did it. True. That yeah. New York Mets hat, oh, classic Billy Crystal. You can get yourself a New York Mets hat. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not the same. So. The uh, the finale is one other thing I wanted to mention, but having that happy ending to it is yeah. another, like with most rom-coms, I mean, I'm sure they do have that happy endings, but notably a lot of the films that either center or heavily feature romantic stuff, even just earlier this year, like past lives, the lack of a happy ending, at least in terms of a couple, is something I've noticed a lot that um, just really cements it as like a great film. If they're able to not end up together, but it still like resonates and works. Um, mm-hmm. This film has the happy ending, although yeah. it didn't always lead to that. Apparently, earlier versions of it did just have it end up not working. I don't know if they just were able to reconcile as just friends or if they truly just like, oh, they go their own way. Um, but I think it's fascinating that I remember watching it the very first time and then even now, like I would have hated if they ultimately yeah. didn't end up together. Like it would have been 
something it would have been that disastrous. Was, it would have yeah, been like, I, how could I believe in love after that? Yeah. You know, you watch the movies where like they don't have like great chem. They like they'll have good chemistry, but like you'll see like it not working out. And this movie is like you can see perfectly why this. You're watching them as friends interact, and they're such good friends that you're like, of course this would work out. The entire time they're friends, like of course this would work out. And then it gets complicated because of their own insecurities and whatnot. And you're like, if you could just resolve that, you would make just the most dynamite couple. You have such chemistry, (laughs) right? But yeah, even in the film, they feature like Casablanca where they don't end up together. And I think that's a brilliant decision. It's amazing. It totally works. So like, I would have been more upset if, you know, Ilsa got off the plane and stayed with Rick at the end of Casablanca. This mm-hmm. one, I feel like, yeah, it, it just felt completely right for them to end up together and for him to run back to her and say that whole great thing about like, when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with someone, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. Good line. Beautiful, amazing. I don't know Great which line. one of them came up with that. If that was a good special. Efron. That had to be Nora, Nora Efron. Efron. But yeah, fantastic stuff. God, um, it's so good. So yeah, it's so satisfying. This is a film that, like, yeah, that Hollywood ending, it just, it's right. Like, it is the best way to cap this off. So yeah, lovely. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, how many wagon wheel coffee tables out of five would you rate this movie? There's only one correct answer. A five. You'll be very Thank happy to know. Thank fucking God. I agree. It's just, it's like the perfect wrong. I would have kicked your ass. I would have <laughs> love out the door, hate on the way. I would have kicked your ass. It is a full five out of five movie for sure. Best yeah. fucking movie, man. All right. Now let's talk about Misery. One year later, 1990, he came out with Misery, another Stephen King adaptation he had done stand by me um and now he's doing misery and then another collaboration with william goldman who had adapted his own book princess bride now he's adapting this one so once again working with some tried and true folks and then in the cast we got james conn and kathy bates leading the uh two-hander here so now how much of this movie did you know before going into it so the basic premise is definitely one that I knew beforehand. I feel like it's just one of those, which I don't know if it was like the book itself or Misery, the movie. I think um, it was a combination. Or if it's a pretty common one. But yeah, just like it's been riffed on a lot and like parodied in many different ways. Yeah. So like that was familiar to me, which is to think, yeah, it's just a fantastic premise. Um, So I knew that. But other than that, I didn't know really anything else. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so going into the movie, did you have like a lot of expectations on how it would follow any horror tropes or did you think it would be scarier or not as scary or what did, what did you think Rob Reiner was going to do handling a horror movie? Right. So that was the the big question. And I will say this is not a horror movie. This is definitely <laughs> a Damn. thriller, but it's not a horror film in any way. And if it was trying to be earnestly, then I think it failed on that front. But I don't think... That was even the intention. I don't think. Do you think Psycho is a horror, horror movie? Um, I think that definitely has more, much more horror elements. I also feel that, you know, it probably nowadays especially leans more towards a thriller. But I think, like the whole shower scene. I mean, everyone has seen that, but in its day, that cer- certainly was horrific. The whole reveal towards the end when he um comes into the room with a knife, wearing the dress, like that is frightening like to this day i still think that 
um is a very effective mm-hmm. like horrific uh just imagery and construction of that scene so i would say that probably does satisfy the horror elements although i would say that's that also i feel like is more of just a thriller to would me would you have would you have preferred if misery was more horror in its tone or do you like that it's more thriller no i prefer thriller um obviously like yeah horror is not my genre but thrillers i do love a bunch like a lot more um so i think though that just the way it was sold to me though like the initial expectations of oh this is gonna be like a horror approach to it and it very much was not um Mm -hmm. that sort of threw me for a loop for a bit but yeah the premise itself and then it taking on more of that thriller sensibilities i think it it worked better for me than it probably would have if it was a horror Mm -hmm. through and through i'm glad i'm glad that at the end of the day you still enjoyed the movie let's get into what you did enjoy about Yes. So I do think that they were able to like further premise they had, they had all the possibilities of the ways they can go about things and the complications and the wrenches they can throw into it. Mm. And I think they pretty much delivered on all of the ones that I was hoping they would go for. Like, especially, which I think was a standout scene was when he initially gets out of the room Mm -hmm. and is uh wheeling himself around trying to find some like phone or some sort of method of escape finding another door or way out um like that cross-cutting with her coming back after buying was it paper the like paper yeah the paper that wouldn't smear i thought that was excellent i thought it was extremely well done Mm -hmm. um had my heart racing so that one i think was pretty great and then other things too when he's trying to um, do things in a little bit more roundabout way, tricking her and poisoning her mm-hmm. with whatever like drug it was that she was giving to him. And so they have their little candle lit dinner, <laughs> but she mm-hmm. spills the wine after he'd already poisoned it's it. It's so good. It's I love the way he makes the toast. Him. He makes the toast three times to misery. And every single time he says it, it just means something a little different. Like the first time he says to misery, he's just saying it about the actual character in the book. And then the next mm-hmm. time he's saying to misery, like your misery, you're taking these pills. And then she spills the wine and he has to do the toast a third time. And the way James Conn says to misery is just so defeated. <laughs> it's it's like it's about completely his misery in this yeah. position. It's perfect. I love it. Yeah, this stuff is great. And then also, Kathy Bates is just having oh my time God. Of her life doing this. She's so good in this movie. <laughs> She's so, so phenomenal. She's insane. What a good character to play. Mm-hmm. What a great performance. She won an Oscar. Yeah. Good and I'm sure she didn't even care that much about that. I think she had, again, the time of her life playing this. I think she had a lot of fun. So, yeah, very engaging performance for sure. Mm-hmm. Did you like a lot of her mannerisms, a lot of her lines, a lot of her... Uh, odd ways of avoiding swearing, <laughs> things Got like that. Beauty and all that. She's a very yeah, she's a very quirky sort of personality that sort of splits into something very angry in like a split second. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a very odd character to play. Right. She seems so sweet and homely at one point, and then she just goes nuts. Indeed. Yeah, that was another good moment 
of when they're building up to whenever she finds out that he kills off misery at the end mm-hmm. of the book and you know she's gonna have some sort of reaction to it yeah she goes crazy like coming in at the middle of the night <laughs> and then yelling at him screaming at the top of her lungs mm-hmm. had the chair up too and everything crazy crazy smacks it against the wall yeah mm-hmm. god she goes crazy i my favorite uh freak out she does is when she's yelling about the when he's rewriting misery coming back and she's yelling about the uh what is it the cliffhanger that she saw when she was a kid the the, the picture story or whatever oh yeah and she and she's like he didn't get out of the cockadoody car yeah, I love that. I love the pushing they do with the camera. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Were there any elements to the movie that you didn't like that much? So this is a two-sided coin because I like what was in there. I just wish they would have been able to go further with it, but I understand why they didn't just because it wasn't as like prevalent of a thing at the time. But the idea of her having this entitlement over his work to the point where she's like literally forcing him to rewrite it so it can suit what she thinks is best for that character and for the world. Mm-hmm. I think that was really compelling, especially in light of like today's times where fandom is just insane. Like we see even to this day, like people are still, their blood will boil at the mention of The Last Jedi or yeah. any like old uh, franchise that gets brought back and they change something or they add a new element to it to try and expand it for other audiences and people are just they get pissed about it and it's like they treat it as such a holy thing that it's a an affront to them personally if someone goes in and alters it in some way um so i think that theme is really compelling it's just something that wasn't as dominant back in 1990 when the film was made i don't know when the book was written but I'm sure that, I mean, that idea was obviously there. It existed since it's the backbone of the theme for this. But had they just been able to lean into that even more, I think I would have, uh, it would have been a better takeaway, I feel like, for me to have that. Um, they do enough with it, but had they been able to go further, I would have liked it more. What are your thoughts on that whole theme? I think it's an interesting theme. I don't think it's the main theme they're trying to explore. I think the the thing that Stephen King was trying to explore the most and what Rob Reiner wanted to highlight the most with the movie was uh, like the entrapment of an author in that state of like having to do something they don't want to do and being forced to do it and trying to escape from that prison. Like even before he's in that prison of being actually forced in the room to write these books – He's already, we, we know that he doesn't want to write these misery books anymore. So in a way, he's already in a prison before the movie even starts. He does not want to write these books. He's trying to get out. And then he's physically, like literally forced into this prison room where he's forced to write the books he doesn't want to write and has to burn the book he does. So I think what the the point, I mean, I know Stephen King has talked about how it's about his addiction issues and how that plays into like what he was forced himself to write and what he thought he had to write and not what he wanted to write. And he talked about that way later after the book came out because he, I guess he just wasn't ready to talk about it when it first came out. But it's also just about, you know, do you feel like you have to write certain things or should you be writing only what you want to write, you know, or doing only what you want to do? And like the, the feeling, that feeling of being trapped into doing what you have to do, 
I think is what they're trying to highlight the most. And that's a very claustrophobic feeling of like having all these things you have to do and know you have to do them. And so I think it's like, it's, it's hard to watch him be forced in this room to type this book that he does not want to write and to come up with a story and not only come up with a story, but come up with a story that's satisfying to a fan. Like Mm -hmm. it's very claustrophobic and very scary to watch. If you ask me. Interesting. So do you feel, would you classify this as a horror film? Do you feel it meets those sort of uh, requirements? Mm, I would call it a horror. I would call it a horror thriller in the same way I would call Silence of the Lambs a horror thriller. Okay. You know, I think it does have very scary elements. I think the, the tension of like Annie's like sadistic torturing of him is very scary to me at least. But I could see where it doesn't have a lot of typical horror elements like jump scares or like scary visuals or anything like that. Uh, but the end, everything from the the hobbling scene all the way to the end of the movie, I think that's that's like the most horror it gets for sure. Everything building up to that is very thriller oriented. And then everything from there to the end is terrifying, if you ask me. I mean, my God, the whole fight they have at the end is is brutal. Yeah, I will say <laughs> a very uh, horrific image that made me squirm and look away was the hobbling. She freaking destroyed his ankles. Oh my God, dude, the, the, the way of wood the way and his then, foot bends is crazy. Yeah. I had to, I could not, I was that to me. I mean that, yeah, I, that steps into a, a huge fear. Like that's just awful. Like being able to at, at somebody's complete like whims and desires to just destroy your body bit by bit. Ooh. And then, that ruthlessly like a whole freaking sledgehammer just oh my smacking into your foot like oh in the awful. original book awful. in the original book she cuts off his foot instead do you think her doing this to his ankles was scarier one i guess i prefer a quicker thing than if i'm looking at my leg getting sawed off i feel like that'd be even worse they cut um, it out because they didn't want to film like a lot of gory stuff in the movie they wanted to keep it more uh, cerebral so uh, but if you ask me the tension of her like describing what hobbling is as she places the block between his ankles and like mm-hmm. holds up the sledgehammer it's pretty scary like you see people's feet get cut off in movies plenty of times you've seen saw you've seen things like that i feel like it's not as scary as this thing that you've never heard of and and in no other media have have you seen anybody get hobbled <laughs> so it's like the idea of making something so original and so new kind of is scarier to me and also showing that foot bend and the screams that James Caan gives, that's pretty horrific, if you ask me. That's a horror movie. Ooh, brutal. What a good scene. Yeah, very effective, for sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I did have some gripes with it. I thought another final battle Mm-hmm. I wasn't uh, fully sold on. Like I, I enjoyed some of the ideas he had there of like how he's going to try and trick her, um, and then using the typewriter to like attack her. I thought that was good. But ultimately, I forget exactly what it was as well. But the like final, final way that he was able to prevail over her, he grabs a, a bust of like a hog and smacks her in the face with it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I didn't feel like that was as climactic. Um, and then it's the, the hog, it's misery. Misery is the name of the hog. I'm well aware of Come the, on. That's not the bad. freaking symbolism of it at that point. But I was like, okay. Because um, do the thing of, oh, she like gets back up and is able to. How did you want her to fight a couple of few? Did you want her to just land on the typewriter and be dead? 
there's no particular way. I also didn't like her landing on it. I would have preferred, like, I do want him to have had the agency of doing something, but I felt like it was, I don't know, just too much of the, like, ooh, she's back. Besides, like, I think clearly getting knocked great. out or getting completely destroyed, um, falling full force into that. So that just didn't entirely work for me. Um, the very ending as well, where he, like, sees her coming across and he's like oh he's still haunted by that moment um i mean i get it but i don't know that also wasn't she's his number one fan resonant yeah i know but eh. and then i liked it i think overall the stuff about like her killing the newborns i don't know why we need all that the stuff of the sheriff as well like how he was able to put things together i thought that would have been done a little bit more cleverly than the way it seems like it was which correct me if i'm wrong but did he just n- recognize her when she got out of the car and was like yelling at the one dude for? I think uh, what it's supposed you know, to imply, bad driver. Yeah, I think what's implying is that he saw her and then remembered the line that she said at her trial because it's in newspapers right. and it's the line from the book that he was reading. Yeah, I get that part of like connecting the lines she had, but him just recognizing her and being like, "Oh, this is some like crazy serial killer lady that." has been around um i don't know i thought there would have been a more clever way to connect the two of that that because it's great that yes her being a super fan is the way that he's able to realize oh she might know where paul Sheldon is or might have him um but just him being able to recognize her off the bat from afar when she says that one line like maybe if if cock duty or whatever it was like if she had lifted that sort of language from the book misery it was like a frequent catchphrase or something. And that's how he was able to start putting two and two together. Maybe that would have worked better perhaps for me for that. But yeah, I know some about that. I was just like, mm, seemed very convenient. It um, is a convenient. Yeah. I'll give you the leeway of like, that is kind of a convenient way to get there. But I mean, it's a movie. Yes, indeed. Um, she also, so she was like suspected of this and all this, but she never ended up in prison at all. Yeah, I do wish they delved like either slightly more into it or slightly less. Like they gave me just enough information where I wanted more or just I didn't want to know that much about it. Yeah. Like if if they had left it at just the newspaper articles in the in the thing and like very like loosely, if they had more loosely referenced like I wish he hadn't gone to trial, which would would have defeated the whole point of him looking up the articles to find her. But the whole articles of her going to like a trial seem like yeah it seems like it seems there's far-fetched one person in the town that is known to be at least suspected of being a serial killer that would be suspect number one yeah when you realize somebody's missing and I they think had gone broken out of their car like i wish just, i wish it had been crazy. like he's flipping through the newspaper like the first few articles he flips through is like is like so-and-so died and then the next article is Annie Wilkes becomes the new so-and-so like like takes their position like those are the first few articles so it's just like implied that she's killing these people and then it very quickly becomes like she's on trial for the murder of dozens of infants and you're like okay if it's that known like you could have just left it at infants are dying at the hospital and like an investigation is occurring but like not been so explicit about it the implication would have been enough and then at that point you could have had her like say some dialogue to the sheriff that he recognizes from the book and then he could have investigated her better and that would have been more compelling and made more sense but Mm -hmm. i don't know i guess they just didn't think it through 
Yep. So those were some of the things that I was like, eh, didn't quite work as well as it could have in another yeah. approach. But any other last minute thoughts you want to give on Misery? No, I just think it's well made. I think it's very like the way it's edited and the way it's shot is, is very Hitchcockian intentionally. And I think that works like as a very big strength, especially like the the depiction of like the spatial reasoning of that house of like keeping everything from Paul's perspective of like, we are going to keep the shots in the bedroom when he's in the bedroom and slowly expand out into the space as he discovers more. I think that's really good. I think the overhead shots that they do a lot of the times are very Hitchcockian and they, they look really, really good. And I just thought the movie as a whole, just works very well in terms of being very scary. I will say my one gripe is that the middle section of it, where he's just like writing the book and the cop is investigating a little bit. There's like a, a good 30-ish minutes that's a little sluggish for me. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, everything from the hobbling scene all the way to the end just picks up and pace so so greatly that it makes up for it almost. Like it's such a strong ending, if you ask me. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention was uh, they never followed up on the poor sheriff's wife after he got his freaking chest opened up from a shotgun. Yeah. And we spent all this time like seeing the cute little dynamic between the sheriff and wife and how they're like putting heads all the time. And she's like annoyed that he's doing this work instead of hanging out with her. And we just don't get to see like any reaction to the sheriff's passing after that. I feel like I can see where they'd be like, oh, that's not necessary. We don't want to spend any time on that. But for as much focus they got throughout the rest of the film, just to never sort of touch on like the sheriff or his legacy or what happened with that again i thought that was a little odd as well yeah it makes me really sad when he gets the the shit blown out of him because <laughs> really? i really love the sheriff he's great yeah poor guy poor little man so right. how many how many broken ankles out of five are you gonna rate this movie <laughs> i am giving it a and uh just calm down though it's okay you could say still it. a great rating, a three point five. It's not a good rating. Three point five is not a good rating. I'm going to give it a four out of five. By definition, it is, which is only slightly higher than you, because I think I enjoyed the ending more than you did. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it's still I, deserving of being part of the streak. I will say, even if you're going to rate it as low as you did, I think it still deserves because there's just so many iconic moments in it, and so like it's become so transferred into like horror. Uh, like vocabulary of like that scene of the hobbling scene and like the ending fight and like the whole idea of putting someone in a room and torturing them like that. I think that whole idea has just become so, as you said, influential that it stands the test of time as being part of the streak, the Reiner streak. Mm -hmm. It might not be the strongest entry in it. I mean, he is not a horror director. That's for sure. Right. But I think it's, I think it still stands the test of time. I think it probably would have been a better movie in another director's hands, but I also don't think it would have been as focused on the themes as Rob Reiner wanted it to be. I think it would have ended up being more uh, horror centric in the same way The Shining is kind of like horror centric and like feeling centric as opposed to theme centric. And I think Rob Reiner's in Rob Reiner's hands, you could really feel like the presence of that theme stand out, which is good. Gotcha. All right. Let's now move on to the final entry in the streak. A few good men. How excited were you? How excited were you to watch this movie? I was very excited. I was yeah. 
thrilled to be able to sit back and relax and watch it on a Friday night. So, of course, a Sorkin special. We oh, yeah. uh, It was initially written as a stage play, and then he adapted himself into a film. He was a screenwriter for it. And then what a cast attached to it. I mean, we got Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, Demi Moore, Kevin Bacon. I mean, all these folks, Kiefer Sutherland, just crazy. The amount yeah. of folks that we had in here. There's also a couple Huge of like, cameos of smaller people um, that would go on to be much bigger as well. So very fun to see that going through the, the whole mm-hmm. film. Oh, but yeah. this is where it gets tough in terms of like the Reiner director analysis because I'm obviously he's had this streak, so that was incredibly successful. But then since this film, there have not been, I think, any films that would be considered classics except maybe um, American President. Yeah. So is it just the strength of like the collaborators he had, like the phenomenal cast and phenomenal writers good, had during this time? To ask. Or is it him? Because I think there obviously is like something special. And I think when Harry Sally is the greatest indication of that, because mm-hmm. like, he is in that through and through, like literally putting his own life and sensibilities and whatnot in there. But then also having the cast and uh, crew and co-writer that he was able to collect, like at least in terms of that, his producing ability, which actually that might be um, the greatest like testament because his whole, his whole Castle Rock entertainment production company, they've gone on to do plenty of amazing things. So maybe that is like the greatest talent he had is just being able to pick out fantastic collaborators um, and then being able to work with them and give them the room to shine. Because um, mm. a few good men, Sorkin, I feel like the writing is the absolute star here. In addition to like all the amazing performances, um, and it's like Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson—they're very talented and reliable. And plenty of other films that they're not working with Rob Reiner, mm-hmm. um, but certainly, I mean, he had to work with them to be able to get these exact performances. Um, so he gets credit for that too, I think. But I don't know. It'd be impressive if a director were to come in and somehow get this wrong with that cast and with this. I would, I would argue that I think the simplicity at which Rob Reiner directs his films, and like the uh, impact that early Hollywood movies from like the '40s and '50s had on him as a director, like shows in a lot of these movies. Like they feel like an older movie that's being filmed in the '90s. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like a '90s movie, and I think that has to do a lot with with the what I said about his reverence for those kinds of movies. And I think that shines really brightly, which is a very strong aspect of it. And because it's so simple, his collaboration with these great actors and these great writers really shines through and it like allows them to step forward into the limelight. And he's willing to take more of a backseat as the director to allow the story to be what it needs to be. I think he's very tender with the stories. He cares a lot about them clearly. And he cares a lot about the characters. And he cares a lot about how the story is told and the manner in which it's told. So I think he's a really good director in the same sense that I think Sidney Lumet is a really great director in that it's not always about being flashy and being very present. It's about serving the story as best as you can, which mm-hmm. Rob Reiner is like clearly a master at. And I think it's just been unfortunate that he has not had a lot of great collaborations since the streak happened. Yeah, I think it would be an interesting experiment to to try and pick out a few films of his later years and then mm-hmm. see 
like what American president LBJ and things like that. Yeah. And see like what quote unquote went wrong. Um, I don't know, phrasing like that sounds kind of mean, but where it, it is does. just like, clearly it doesn't, I'm sure he'd even admit like critically and commercially it hasn't hit the heights he did here, which again, is like no one can ever touch. It's like an untouchable streak here of like what, six or seven films back to back that were um, phenomenal and have become like quintessential classics in their respective genres. Define the eighties. Just fantastic. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so he's got that streak under his belt. It's incredible. It's amazing. But it would be interesting to try and parse out why did those later works not resonate as well as, you know, this 80s streak did. Um, because I agree with you there. Yeah, he's someone that isn't going to put his own like style or putting the quote unquote Rob Reiner stamp on it if it doesn't serve the story. Like he wants to allow whatever the story's trying to do, whatever the themes there are, whatever the character uh, character arcs are those are going to come first before him trying to like bend all of that into his own vision and making that be the standout element. Like he is able to be more invisible and give the spotlight to those other things and allow them to truly stand out. Um, yeah. But yeah, there are definitely like, you can feel in all of his films, like that sense of realism to those characters. They're all fleshed out. So again, the writing gets some credit for that, but just the way that the more human elements are able to come out, um, mm -hmm. that is, I think, a consistent thing we've seen in all of the films in the streak. So I think the word you use there of like being very tender with the story and with the characters, I think that's a great way to put it. Um, he takes a lot of care there and being an actor himself coming from like all in the family, I think that allows him to, to have that sensibility and apply it to working with these amazing actors so obviously they'd be able to hold their own and do great but working with someone like reiner that's able to understand where they're coming from understand how to get the best out of them and what will be the best for the story overall that is mm -hmm. absolutely an asset he has as a director that has made these films be so successful mm -hmm. so yeah not to take away anything from that but Sorkin absolutely threw on a masterclass here of how to write such compelling and engaging drama oh, yeah. without there needing to be like bullets fired or anything like that he just mm -hmm. had characters with really strong points of view and put them in opposition to each other so that they had irreconcilable differences in their beliefs and we just get to see them hash that out throughout the whole film it's mm. it's like really a sight to see um so yeah having jessup obviously believe his ways of controlling the military and like building up strength in his men even if they have to be brutal and unseemly he thinks that's necessary so that the world can be protected um of course danny and joe don't believe in that they believe that that's wrong and that those two Marines who felt they were forced into doing what they did because they were given those exact orders means that they're not at fault. But then even they have differences in how they want to go about it. Danny starting out with being that more sleazy, like used car salesman, as she called him, of just wanting to get the fastest deal possible, get a plea bargain. A good deal, done. too. He gets them down to like two and a half years. 
or no yeah. six months out in six, six months months yeah incredible stuff incredible um, plea but she does believe that they're able to win and wants them to be able to do what's right and like call out the injustice that had led to them being in this predicament in the first place so they have their own oppositions there and then even the other guy on their team sam um he does think those two kids uh made a mistake and he's like oh yeah i think they're not guilty but they should spend the rest of their lives in prison like he has his own view on it but they're Mm -hmm. still all sort of aligned in their goal of they're working on the team they're the counsel to these kids um and they're trying to help them even though again joe believes we can win danny 100 percent thinks they're gonna lose he thinks there's no way but he's still pursuing it um like all that stuff is great and then also the clashing with the the marines themselves they don't want to take that plea deal even though it's fantastic and amazing because they don't think they did anything wrong they're like we followed our code we mm-hmm. did what we were supposed to that makes us honorable if they if a court decides we're wrong then so be it but i'm not going to say i'm guilty of anything which I, I, respect. Did, I was told so that was a really fascinating component to it as well so they all have these strong beliefs and their own opposition and get to just see the the clashes that come from that and it makes for really compelling drama yeah i agree it's it's just through and through fantastic i mean it's got humor in it it's got the the great drama like you're talking about great set pieces great costume design and fantastic performances i mean jack nicholson kills it he's only in four scenes he's only in four scenes in the whole movie and he steals the show absolutely so also tom cruise is so charming why why doesn't he do more dramas like this anymore why does he only do action movies he's just so charming i know hopefully we'll we'll get him back soon enough when he can't sprint as fast anymore right um but yeah he was definitely fantastic um and yeah let's just talk about the uh the big, big finale in the monologue yes, that Jack please. Nicholson's able to give because it is iconic for oh a reason. God. So Such a, good. Such a good scene. So wonderfully written, wonderfully delivered. I mean, yeah, when you get some of the, like one of the best screenwriters in the game and one of the best actors in the game, you just get an, a truly iconic scene. I mean, yeah, it was, it was amazing. And getting the full context of it because obviously I've, I mean, I don't know how you could not know at least that initial line you can't handle the truth but then the rest of that uh monologue before i've heard it um but hearing it in context of the whole rest of the film and especially what he had done like those earlier scenes that he had uh when he was in that office and then we also at the table it's so great because yeah you believe the fact that this guy despite it like how could you admit to doing the one thing that Mm. you just have to not admit to because no one else can prove it you're the only person that can possibly get yourself in trouble. Mm-hmm. How could you let it slip? But he does it because he truly has such disdain for like Tom Cruise's character and for all these other like lawyers or all the people that have to sit behind the offices and aren't out on the wall, on the fence line like him. So he has that superiority inside of himself that he feels this is all beneath him and he shouldn't have to justify it. Like he knows what's best. So, of course, he's going to explode and give him what for about it. So I mm-hmm. thought that was just ingenious writing. Yeah. And it was built up beautifully. It's so good. I love I love the, sh- the the look he gives to Sam and to 
Demi Moore when he when you you know it's like the if you can't go for it, don't go for a moment. Like it's the you're gonna go yes. for it, you're not gonna go for a moment. And Jack Nicholson tries to get away, and Tom Cruise goes, "You're not dismissed." Oh, so good. And a great callback too to when he tried to leave initially, and she was yep. like, "You're dismissed. Like you have to wait on your superiors to mm-hmm. dismiss you for that." So that was great. And then that whole moment too of because. You know, he's the one on the stand. So technically, I mean, yeah, the lawyer is the one that's um, in charge there. But he's like, oh, call me Colonel or Sir. And then he Mm -hmm. makes that remark to the judge of like, oh, this is how you run things. And then he's like, you'll refer to me as your honor or Mm -hmm. um, Sir as well. So him getting put in his place was great because, I mean, yeah, that's the chain of command. And he all his talk about like, oh, you got to have honor code and all this and respect the orders that you're given. He doesn't fully even believe in that because he sees himself as above this whole sham uh, trial. So he eats breakfast 500 yards from a human that wants to put a bullet in him. Yeah, that was a crazy talk about, you know, we talked a lot about in Mission Impossible 3, Philip Seymour Hoffman's impression of Tom Cruise. Yeah. Wrote Tom Cruise impersonating Jack Nicholson. That was great. Yeah. It's not. It's more... not as good as Philip Seymour Hoffman, though. <clears throat> <clears throat> the coughing he does in Mission Impossible Three is so good. It is, but I just want to see more on film. I just want to see more people impersonating other famous actors. That's yeah. just great. Need, it's need really more great. of that. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Any other things you want to mention about this film? What makes it stand out? I just think like a lot of Rob Reiner's movies, even though it is something very serious, it still has like a lot of fun being what it is. And like it has moments of great intensity and like a lot of characters shouting at each other and yelling, Tom Cruise getting drunk and throwing things around. And so it has those dark moments, but it still feels as a whole pretty lighthearted compared to like what it could have been, which yeah, I think is a great strength. For the subject matter to uh, yeah, of like the of murder of a Marine and the trial of the subsequent trial is like, it's surprisingly lighthearted, which I think is a very, very great strength. Yeah, which Sorkin, I mean, that's also how he sort of approaches everything, too. He always has that lightheartedness, um, mm-hmm. or at least just like that snappy, witty dialogue that always will allow you to have something to be charmed by. Yeah, um, but under another director, they could have made it really dark. Yeah, they could have made it much more serious, but yeah, right. Which I think Reiner would have been weak. Having that comedic background, I think he does a great job, too, of every, even misery, like so much of that is so absurd and funny so mm-hmm. he always um is able to lend it that more lighthearted tone um, yeah so yeah all right out of how many code reds out of five are you giving it i'm gonna give it a full five i really love a few good men i think it's just solid solid writing solid performances and just a very tame and like well-balanced direction from rob reiner like he just like makes all the right choices to deliver what is a great movie Mm-hmm. yeah i'm giving it 4.5 code reds out of Bitch. five was the where's the half Amazing. i think with joe's character i feel like mm-hmm. she just needed to get one dub i felt like she was not nah. back for so much of it and nah. they didn't really give her one where she like through and through was able to get a victory all to herself i thought that would have helped to balance things out more um and give a little more resolution to her character I think they do a great job of like Danny and then his arc of like, Mm -hmm. he doesn't want to be a trial lawyer. He doesn't want to live up to or risk not being able to live up to his father. Um, So he's hesitant. And then she's able to come in there, chew him out and be like, 
like use hug your used car salesman mm-hmm. um and finally pushing them to go down that path so i think that works really well but i felt like they just needed to give her something that would allow her to have that moment of proving i am an excellent lawyer and she has some things like she recommends putting just up on the stand but then she's like yelled at for three minutes straight about it um, dunk on women <laughs> it's an aaron sorkin movie man come on it's true i mean he has women don't get a break that's true but he has uh, like yeah his relationship with writing women is interesting because he does write a lot of strong women characters but they also usually are just like nuisances to the men like they're really good yeah, they antagonists but i feel like he needs to if especially in this case like she is meant to be one of our like heroes in this I feel like just giving um, something to allow her to have a victory and then be acknowledged for that. Like the whole thing of her like strenuous objection and she gets. That's really funny. I think it's funny. It's like good stuff, but it's like all of that. Oh, you strenuously objected? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you strenuously objected. (laughs) Please. I I think it's great stuff, but I think just give her a dub, one final dub at the end. I would have liked that. And there are other moments. Um, to where yeah had there been i don't know some sort of like visual component that elevated it i think you're right of like there's a steady hand always with reiner in terms of the visuals but just some sort of like i don't know one memorable shot would have been i think another thing that would help add to it and elevate it since i think the the shots of guantanamo bay were really well done like a lot of the guantanamo bay shots were good and I think the shot, like the like the strength of the movie is those close-ups they do on those actors, really getting up close and blowing those faces up at those performances. I think the shot of Tom Cruise where he's yelling at Jack Nicholson on the stand and uh, behind him is Kevin Bacon yelling at Tom Cruise and yelling at the judge and objecting. I think that's a really good shot. And then I think the reverse shot, which is just the tight on Jack Nicholson is fantastic, where he says, "I can't, you can't handle the truth. What a great, great tight shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't but of course, that. those aren't going to be like memorable, like, oh, yeah. look at this. It's beautiful. But I think they they make the movie work is like making it tied up and close like that. I agree. Like those are one of those things where it's like, yeah, there's no flashy style there, but those are so effective in allowing all the emotions that we're They're so to simple that a lot of times, a, like a lot of weaker directors don't think to use them because they're so simple. Mm-hmm. The idea of just doing a shot reverse shot and having them be tight close ups is very plain and like very easy to do. And the hardest part is choosing to do it because you know how effective it is. And a lot of directors won't do it. They'll try to do something flashy. They'll do like a whip pan or something. And it'll just get in the way of, of just this tight cut that you do from the, the more wide shot of Tom Cruise yelling at him and that tight cut to his face, just a close of you can't handle the truth is just so effective and it's so simple in theory that many people just forget to use it. Yeah. It works. It really, really works. And that's the genius of Rob Reiner is knowing that sometimes the simple moves are the best ones. All right, there we go. That is our final comment on the great streak of Rob Reiner. Indeed. So you, you ranked these movies five, three and a half, and four and a half. Strong entries. I ranked them five, four, and five. Also strong entries. Mm -hmm. And we also gave some resounding uh, scores to the first half of this discussion. So, I mean, overall. (laughs) No, fuck. Mine were all 4.5. You gave a five, um, I think, to 
Spinal Tap for sure got a five. Two of them. You did Spinal Tap, and then I think you gave Princess, Princess Bride, Bride a five. And Stand, Stand by, by Me, me a four point five. Yeah, correct. So stellar scores. Yeah, I mean, you were all four and above. Yeah. So I think your average, yeah, it was probably what like four point seven five. Um, and probably, my average yeah. probably right below, but we'll just round it up. Yeah, average probably like four point five five. Yeah, Not probably because the three point five brings it down, but we'll round it up. But know. that's six movies he made back to back. Those are high averages. Absolutely, I would say that this is quite the successful streak. Would you agree, Ryan? I think it's undeniable. One hundred percent. I I am now going to keep my eyes out, my eyes peeled, for a director who has a similar streak, and they don't necessarily have to be year after year. Because I mean, what he did was very much impossible to make these quality of movies year back to back. Insane. I'm going to look for a director who has a similar streak, just movies in a row. Like I think um, closest to be probably Tarantino, I think has a pretty hot streak because his movies are so good, but they all come out five years apart. So he has a lot of time to work on them. Right. I think the undeniable best streak ever would be Coppola's seventies run. That's fair. And enough. That's, that's a pretty strong run. And you have like a good argument for those films to be considered among the best of all time, like top 10 contenders. Uh, what is then, it? It's, yeah, it's Godfather, it. Conversation, Godfather 2. Apocalypse um, Now. Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Those are the four. Those are just... That's four crazy. great films. Yeah. And then, much like Reiner, he's uh, sort of never been able to reach those heights or come even close. So that's fascinating. I guess you yeah, can you hit a hot streak. Yeah. You roll the dice. Yeah, you get an incredible hot streak, and then it sort of it takes you out for the rest of your career. So. Tapers out a little bit. I think Steven Spielberg had a pretty hot run at the beginning of his career to go from Jaws to uh, what was it, E.T., Close Encounters, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Temple of yeah. Doom. I think a lot of people wouldn't agree on Temple of Doom, but I would. I love Temple of Doom. Yeah, I'd throw that in there. There are a couple, yeah, like lesser knowns or respected one, like 1941 that he has or his color oh fact, i think right. honestly is not bad i think people like that i i've never seen it but I've never those seen are it. not like considered among the classics but definitely he'd have to be like you're taking the average of it mm. <laughs> if you're allowed to drop off he's... like one or two that were like not as great i feel like he would definitely have the longest streak for sure yeah i think scorsese's mid 70s to mid 80s run was pretty strong too to start with Taxi Driver and work your way all the way up to uh, what Passion of the Christ in like '84 or something. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty strong run with Raging Bull in there. King of Comedy is really, really good. Things like that. And then he also had a similar run from mid '90s to mid 2000s, ending in Departed. That was a pretty strong run too. Yeah. Honestly, you can start with Goodfellas and go all the way to the Departed, and that's a pretty good run. Casino. Um, what's the remake he did? That's really good. Cape Fear is really, really good. Gangs of New York is really good. That's a pretty strong run. But the never. Year. Never year year to year back to back like Rob Reiner. Yeah, that's what's crazy too. Like so many of these were literally back to back years. It's like six movies or six or seven movies in like eight years, and they're classics. Incredible. Yeah. I think we should do a follow up at some point to do the uh, post Reiner streak. See what what happened, where the magic was lost. I'd be down. Yeah. So yeah, stay tuned for that. Indeed. Sometime far off in the future. Way far off in the future. Anyway, for now, that's all the time we have. If you'd like to give your thoughts on the show, you can email us at theboxofficeshowpod at gmail.com. Our main title for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDave. And if you like the show, please give us five stars on whatever podcast app you're listening to, and be sure to tune in next week. Have a great rest of your day.